0: Welcome to Behind the Curtain, L.A. Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. Hello, well this is Stacey Brightman. I'm the Vice President for L.A. Opera's Connects, which is the Department for Community Engagement and Learning. And one of our favorite things to do is to get to sit down and spend a little time talking about opera, and it's even better when we get to do it with people that we adore, such as my wonderful friends that are here today with me. First of all, I have Dr. Muriel McClendon, who is an associate professor of history at UCLA and a dear and dear beloved longtime friend I like to call him Maestro Maestro Jeremy Frank who is our associate chorus master at LA Opera at our home. So welcome my friends, welcome. And this is the first in a we hope kind of a fun series. We'll look at the whole year actually of opera, but we're calling it history versus opera. <laughs> and and you know when you when you look back at kind of the history of the arts it, even before novels, of course, um, or certainly before movies and television, it seems like opera and theater were probably the original historic fiction. And boy, we love our historic fiction in opera. And perhaps uh, a great jumping off place to kind of talk about, well, you know, what did our composers and, and librettists do with these, you know, they take these sometimes historic events, they sometimes completely made up events, but set in correct historic times and locales and And what do they glean from them? And or really maybe what were they trying to say about their own times? And today we get to talk about Il Trovatore, the great Verdi masterpiece. You know what? I'm just going to throw it to you, dear Jeremy. What is the beginner's guide to Trovatore?
1: Well, there's a lot to say, so I'll try and distill it down. You know, um, we often, and I think correctly, think of Verdi as one of the greatest Uh, Italian composers, particularly of romantic opera. And those of us who know and love Verdi know that his works span three different eras. There's the early Verdi, when he was just starting out, writing pieces that were quite nationalistic, um, you know, because Italy was in a big state of flux in the 19th century and uh, actually didn't become even the country that we sort of know it as now until 1870. So at the beginning part of his career, he was a big proponent for Italy coming together as this future modern Italy. And then there are these special pieces in 1850, right at the beginning of the decade. Trovatore is one, Rigoletto is another, and Traviata is one. And you might be thinking to yourself, gosh, I know all three of those titles, and there's no accident. In many ways, his musical language uh, evolved, and he started kind of catching fire in a new way, in a new and mature way. Trovatore is this Interesting piece. It's interesting in several ways. One is that uh, rarely did Verdi decide to write an opera in this period without a publisher also saying, hey, we'd like to commission you for this opera so that you get paid. But this was actually a project of his that he was drawn to and he reached out to his librettist first. You know, the source material for this is a Spanish play uh that comes from i think the 1830s by antonio garcia gutierrez play in spanish is called el trovador and then that translates into italian as the uh, trovatore he sort of wrote it right in the mix of uh he had composed rigoletto and he was about to find the material and be drawn to the project Traviata. he started trovatore but then kind of composed that and Traviata at the same time. And I think in some ways, it seems to me, this is sort of a a passion opera for him, like one that he writes from his own interest. It's set... it's set in Spain in the 15th century and actually toward the beginning of the 15th century. You know, the characters, most of them are fictional, but it is set in the aftermath of an actual uh, civil war that happened in that region of Spain. And essentially, there was a king, um, King Martin of Aragon. And in 1410, he died and he didn't leave any clear successor to his throne. There were people who were near fits but not good fits. One guy, Ferdinand, uh, was essentially his mom's nephew. And so because it was through the bloodline of the mother, that was close but not a slam dunk. Uh, There was another person, um, uh, Urgel. I'm not sure (laughs) what language to pronounce that in. (laughs) He was uh, the father's brother-in-law, and so um, he was only a relative through marriage. And uh, and then there was actually at least one more uh, claimant for the throne, a guy named Frederick, uh, who actually, I'm not sure if I can say this word, but he was of unclear lineage, uh, therefore a, technically a bastard. Mm. And uh, he actually had very few real claims to the throne, except that the pope wanted to prop him up and legitimize his claim. That guy eventually was convinced to sort of withdraw his claim from the throne and throw his support behind Ferdinand, who did then become the successor. Got it. And that guy um, then sort of creates this amalgam of people who followed him who were essentially royalists. And the followers of Urgel, or U- Urgel, or however I should be saying that, um, he uh, and his followers became rebels in comparison to these other people, ah. and that's useful for us for the plot of Trovatore because actually the fictional characters fall into these two camps too. So there are four main characters um, in in Trovatore. One is the Count of uh, uh, the Count di Luna himself who is actually a royalist, though he might be, the inspiration for him might be this guy who had claimed the th- throne and decided to step back. And then he was made to be like a, he was granted a title, I guess is what I want to say. <laughs> and, and, and in essence became like a henchman. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. That, that royalist party. So he's guy number one, Count de Luna. Manrico is completely fictional. He is probably uh, the leader of uh, the rebel cause, not the prince or anything, but he it's sort of a rags-to-riches story. And he's a valiant fighter. Uh, he also is the son of Azucena, this Romana woman who Verdi is obsessed with. In fact, Verdi wanted to originally call the opera after her. Um, Yeah, Yeah, he was so fascinated by her, which is one of the ways that we know um, that he sees her as as one of the big heroines of this opera. And then the fourth person is Leonora, who is in the nobility of the royalist party. She's especially important because she's the fulcrum of a love triangle. Essentially, if she's at the top of a triangle, on one side we have Diluna, who loves her but she does not love him back. And then mm-hmm. we have Manrico, who at the beginning of the opera is taking this assumed identity of a tro- uh, troubadour. That is the English word for trovatore. Um, so he's this guy who wanders around singing and reciting epic poetry. And um, essentially he appears under her window and, uh, and woos her. And he's very convincing because he loves her and she loves him back. So there are a couple thoughts about where the etymology of the word Trovatore comes from. It appears already in France by, I think, the 10th or 11th century. And there are two possible etymologies from Arabic as well. Um, Word stems that have either the words TBR or Mm DBR, which would be the main consonants of the stem of uh, Trovatore, Troubadour in French. And both of those word stems in Arabic have to do either with striking an instrument to play it or sounding an instrument. And weirdly, in reality, there's a bit of a, anachronism in this story because we're we have to be set somewhere after 1410 for the stuff that's happening here. And really the troubadour tradition musically was already dying out by the 1350s. <laughs> he kind of Grab like went into the grab bag of history and brought out all of his favorite elements uh, to combine in whatever way he saw.
2: And, and I don't really know much about, it, but I always think of troubadours as even as earlier than, you know, way earlier than. Yeah,
1: right. Because I think if if I'm not mistaken, I just read about this, but I think the tradition started as early as the ninth
2: cent- century. I don't know, but I mean, I really sort of think about it as kind of twelfth, thirteenth century, and I may be wrong about that, but I mean, I don't. Yeah, certainly by this time. Yeah, I think it's it's gone.
0: I mean, it's lovely, though. It's also associated again with the Roma that, you know, Manrico is, is he a troubadour because he is also a Roma, right? That, and, and the troubadours were always itinerant. You needed them, but you hated them, too, because they were the ones who would bring you the stories. Uh, they would bring you the news from the neighboring town. Um, they brought you entertainment. So you love them. But of course, the moment a plague hit or your cow died well, you got to blame the outsider, you got you to blame the troubadour. When somebody goes to see Troubadour, does it feel like you're seeing a political
1: drama? One thing that is true of Verdi's uh, pieces that ev- evoke politics in general is, of course, that's the backdrop. But I think he's really interested in the human aspects of these relationships. So in many ways, the love triangle is the prominent flavor that you get, though it is set against this political backdrop.
2: May I ask all you opera people, has anybody done any deep research on why Verdi chose this particular period to focus on? Because, I mean, if you're looking for civil unrest, you have so many eras from which to choose. And it seems uh, like uh, this just seems a really interesting one to have landed on. I wonder if
1: it was just like the hot play at the time, you know, because the play only predates the opera by about 15 years. But I don't know why that guy would have chosen this
2: era, right? Because I mean, I you know I don't know any you know I don't know a lot about Spanish history. From what I've read, this period gets pretty short mentions in in the history books. It's not a you know I mean there, yeah. there's there's not, not a to focus. No, it's not. I, you know I went looking. You know I expected. I can tell you. I I expected. Uh, you know, I was going into the academic article database first, and I expected to see a ton of stuff, and there was almost nothing. Wow, And and even when I was looking, I started looking at at books online, Martin really gets a couple of pages, and that's about it, sort of across across the things that I was able to have access to. So, you know, he died in 1410, and the unrest is over by 1412, so it's not like there's a long, drawn-out civil war or anything. Yeah, this ain't no 100 100 years. (laughs) <laughs> right, exactly. And so I couldn't even figure out, I had a hard time, you know, of course, I don't have a lot accessible to me, but what exactly was going on in those couple of years between his death and Ferdinand being, you the compromised candidate, I couldn't even find out a lot about what, what was going on. I mean, I don't think it was two years of unrelenting civil war. It doesn't sound like that. And that would actually make sense to me, given what, you know, given what the hundred years war was like, that was not 116 years of unrelenting warfare. But it just seems to me that this was not, you know, not a a terribly important uh, period in anybody's history. <laughs>
1: So. Maybe in a way that actually frees Verdi. I mean, if you, t- if you take into account a piece like Tosca, which yes. is set in a very specific year, even, and at, right. a, at very specific junctures of what was happening politically, um, really, uh, Puccini is sort of, he has to hew to the history a little bit. And that is one of the, I think, the strengths of that piece. I'm guessing, Stacey, that will probably be a, a piece for future subject for this podcast. Um, but maybe here, because the history has a bit more anonymity, it gives them bigger leeway.
0: And of course, a, a really common theme, especially, you know, succession and everybody's obsession with succession in all of these different monarchies, a civil war as the background, and what seemed to be endless civil wars leading to other endless civil wars. And I know a theme that you pops up a lot in the drama of the period, too, Renaissance drama, is that love versus duty, you know, love versus honor. And we haven't even touched, you know, the the introduction of the Roma people into this, um, you know, who sometimes people known as gypsies. What stands out to you in in all of this that Jeremy laid out? I think
2: think the issue of of succession was one that was always extremely important. And when I teach this period to my students, I always tell them, if you ever become king or queen of your own realm, don't die without heirs or don't die (laughs) until your heirs uh, reach their majority because it's just it's just terrible afterwards because that was always a recipe for unrest as we see unfolding uh in this opera and in fact martin and his wife had had four children you'd think that one of them would have survived but it was the middle ages and that did not happen his eldest child, his son, also named Martin, who would have been his heir, actually died in 1409, one year before Martin uh, Martin himself did. So that's why he died without heirs. And apparently, he did not name an heir to follow him and that helped to precipitate the unrest that lasted for the for the the, the next couple of years. The all the other thing I also tell my students is when a monarch succeeded to the throne in medieval Europe, really your first job as a medieval monarch was to make the next monarch. That mm-hmm. was the that you should get on that right away. Get married and start start making the the the, the next monarch. So yeah, so I would just say that yes that this was a really really important consideration. You wanted to pass down your realm intact to the next generation who would hopefully expand it. Because in addition to making the next monarch, a a really important job of of medieval monarchs was to expand territory. And so whatever you had done and expanded, you wanted to pass that down to your your son. Uh, I know some places in Europe had specific laws that realms could not pass to a woman or through the woman's line. I guess Spain was, Spain was, was like that. You know, my, my work is in England, and England did not have those laws. And it was, it was never preferred for a woman to succeed to the throne anyway. And so that's why it was, re- it was really important to expand your to- territory and make the next heir who would inherit your territory. Does
0: anybody have an idea about Verdi in Italy? What, what do Italians and the rest of the world think of Spain at this time? You know, is there any thought about why you would want to set your opera in Spain as opposed to Italy or
2: other countries? Spain and Italy d- did have a political r- relationship. King Martin was also king of Sicily, or I think that was his title, K- K- king ah. of Sicily. Um, and so, you know, the Spanish had, had political interests in Italy in, in this period. And I know that Martin was, I believe, was king of Sicily. You know,
1: uh, very frequently I sort of evoke the idea that composers throughout our repertoire often set in far away and long ago uh, so that they can make commentary on their contemporary Political situations.
0: That's a safe move if you're in a dicey political situation yourself, perhaps.
1: Yeah. And Italy hadn't yet gelled quite. Um, and Europe itself um, between 1840 and 1848 and 52 and 1870, you know, there were these big tectonic shifts that happened in France and Italy and Germany that were the motions that ultimately would set up. Um, the modern 20th century world, but it was still in flux. Aside from uh, Verdi wanting to write human stories, wanting to um, set human stories against a political backdrop, I think it does. You know, one of the things that I found in, in researching this is that the plot itself is unusually chaotic for Verdi's works of this time. You know, each of the scenes lasts on average, about 15 minutes. And so for him, these scenes are short. They happen in rapid succession. They get to the guts of the emotion of the scene. And Mm -hmm. often, you know, the characters um, run off and fight each other, but we don't actually see that. We hear about what happened in the next scene. So we're looking at these little snippets of of raw emotional connection between people. Some of that and him choosing to use these slightly older fashioned musical forms, which helps make sense out of that chaos.
0: You know, speaking of the music, maybe the most famous piece of music uh, from this opera, the Anvil Chorus. I mean, that's the preparation for a war. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in that famous, famous piece of music?
1: I'll just play the famous tune part that everybody recognizes. Sing along at home if you know it. <laughs>
0: Yeah, bravo, bravo. bravo. Yeah. If I remember correctly, it's the Roma, the gypsies in the morning, you know, getting their weapons prepared.
1: Yeah, and um, there are several things about it that draw Verdi to this. One is the idea that not only are these people political rebels, but they're also counterculture. uh yeah. I think. And um, as a musician, if we look at the orchestration of of Verdi's Anvil Chorus, uh, it it is part of the music to have these sword blows and these these forging sounds. They're actually notated with rhythm. And there are sounds of uh, triangles and, and tambourines in the percussion section that are evocative of what Verdi thinks this culture would sound like. It, it's sort of in the same way that when Mozart wrote The Abduction from the Seraglio, he used symbols and and right. instruments that were outside of the conventional Western European canon. We were watching a documentary last night on the role of Spanish territories in the millennium before Trovatore is <laughs> set. Mm. Uh, you know, as the rest of Europe went into the Dark Ages, um, really the Arabic culture that came across Gibraltar and uh, became the Moorish culture in Spain, preserved and in fact retranslated ancient works from Greek back into Latin and made them again accessible to the rest of Europe, which had lost them. There was a rich, super intellectual legacy that is preserved through that culture. And I suppose it's a melting pot before our own melting pot by many centuries.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Nero, your thoughts on that or what's going on with the Roma people in Europe and specifically in
2: Spain? The Roma were a a very distinct ethnic minority in Spain. And of course, uh, Spain in the Middle Ages was not a unified country, there were many Spains, there were many parts of, of, of Spain. So there were there were many peoples in, in Spain and the Roma were a very distinct uh, ethnic minority among those diverse peoples and cultures. And I think they really sort of existed at the margins of Spanish society, however you want to define Spanish, uh, Spanish society. Uh, from the reading I did, it's not clear where the Roma came from uh, you know how they how they got into Spain. Not clear where uh, where they came from from, but they were they were well known and they were vi- they were very distinctive because they looked different from other people living in in that area, and they were they were different in in, in every way. They they acted differently. They wore different clothing than uh, other people did. They were migratory when a lot of people were were, were not. Uh, And, you know, even though ostensibly they shared the same Roman Catholic religion, at least the charge was that the Roma um, engaged in kinds of, you know, bizarre religious practices that really sort of stood outside the boundaries of um, acceptable uh, Roman Catholicism. They were also often charged with practicing witchcraft. Uh, or sorcery. And so they really, you know, they really sort of existed at the margins of, of society. And and also, you know, they also had reputations as thieves and kidnappers. I mean, from what I've read that they really loomed larger in the imagination than they did in fact. That they were really a very small part of the population, but perhaps perhaps and this is just my speculation, perhaps they were more visible because they were migratory uh, to to an extent that the rest of the population um was was not they also they served as entertainers and maybe i don't i don't know maybe that's where the tambourines came from the idea of of of, of the tambourines but they did according to things i've read they did serve um, a useful economic purpose because since they migrated all over the place they were able to take goods around and i like, guess and sell goods that you know, populations in isolated Uh, parts of the country would not have been able to get. But on the whole, they were just targets of discrimination and and persecution.
1: I'm picking up on the idea that you said that they loomed large, uh, Mm -hmm. these aspects of them loomed large in the imagination. I think that's certainly true of these opera composers who we've been evoking. If we think of Carmen um, Bizet, the end of Act Two, is where Carmen is trying to convince José this very proper, uh, I forget his region of France that he's from, but he's a very proper, supposed to be proper. He's actually a murderer, but um, he's supposed to be this uh, Catholic boy. And she's trying to get him to join with them and and wander around the countryside and live like they do as part of their community. And her convincing argument is... Um, La chose enivrante, la liberté, uh, the uh, what you need is this most intoxicating thing, liberty. Mm. Um, and i can I can imagine Verdi being drawn to that same aspect of these. Uh, these people. In fact, you know, when we get to Act Three of Trovatore and the rebels have actually captured a castle for the first time in the story as we see it, it's actually when they become their most vulnerable to attack. When they're lithe and quick and on their feet and able to fight, they're victorious. But when they are tied to a place, it's like kryptonite for them. I I realized um, as I was hearing you speak, Muriel, just now um, that there was one other thing that what you had said earlier triggered me to uh, to want to bring up a little bit. And that was just a little bit um, more about the character of Azucena, because you had mentioned while you were talking that uh, Roma were persecuted and they were um, very frequently accused of witchcraft. And in fact, that happens in this libretto. You know, the the impetus that kicks off the story is that Azucena's mother was accused of making one of the De Luna kids sick uh, by cursing him. And so she was put to death on the, at the stake. And that her dying wish for her daughter was to be vindicated over the course of the opera. And then Azucena in a super emotional distraught state accidentally throws her own bi- baby on the fire instead of you know this evil man's baby on the fire and then has to raise her her uh, enemy's child as her own for all these many years she lives with this huge burden and and is seeking out uh, sort of obsessively trying to to do right by her mom's dying wishes and in a way it it creates a tragedy at the end, um, a victory for her when she can finally reveal that De Luna has killed his own brother. But I think that those whole dynamics um, set in the imagination of these people being capable of witchcraft or believed to be able to do witchcraft, that's a big force in the opera that propels the narrative forward too.
2: You know, I would just also add from what I have read, so you know, even though you know um Roma were the target of all this persecution, discrimination, sort of saber rattling, that I think very few of them were actually apprehended by authorities. Because of course I mean, they moved around a lot, so you couldn't it was it was hard to find them. And I think I read someplace, and I can't we can't quote me on this, that that none of them actually ever got executed, even though they were, you know, accused of practicing these 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 crimes um that might have uh ended in in execution.
1: That's interesting. And actually it sort of plays out in uh, this libretto's story as well, because, you know, when, um when Di Luna and Manrico first meet each other, uh, Di Luna says, "Reveal yourself. Say who you are." And Manrico tells him, and he is an outlaw, and there is a death sentence for him. And uh, Manrico says, "Hey, let's let's go to court, and you know, take me to the prince, who would probably give him some kind of trial." And Di Luna, for personal reasons, keeps it out of court so that they can fight a duel, and he can take. Uh, the matter of justice into his own hands really. Um, And that keeps coming up throughout the piece too.
2: Interesting. Yeah,
1: it sort of skews it perhaps toward the human part of it instead of the political part, but it's it's interesting because it wouldn't probably exist without being set in, in this time and place. That's true.
0: Coming into, you know, just a couple, I can't believe this, our time is running up, you know, just a few final thoughts what if anything does this opera get right about history and what does it get wrong and does it matter
2: <laughs> you know i will go to the last and say that it doesn't really matter uh-huh. uh, um you know in uh in, in general um i'm just you know i'm happy when people are interested in, in in history and so i think the point of going to something like this is not to to sit and watch it and say that's right and that's wrong and that's right and and that's wrong. As I've said, an artist can, does, and should take liberties with the historical narrative. We all know we're going to see an opera. We're not going to see a historical production. And so I think the artist should and does take liberties there. And for me personally, as an historian, if seeing something like this gets somebody interested in history to the point where he or she might go and read a book or something else, then the opera has done its job for me as a historian. And so I'm happy, I'm happy then. And if not, that's fine, that's fine too.
0: <laughs> any, any thoughts from you, Jeremy, about that? I'm,
1: I'm just in agreement, really. Um, I think the thing that the opera gets right isn't necessarily history, although I'm not, I'm really not equipped to comment with lots of depth to that. But I think it is um, endeavoring to capture the ideas of uh vengeance and love and uh, unreciprocated love and in many ways it's a big revelation about what Italian romantic era art values more than what uh, they think history tells us about those things Mm
0: -hmm. yeah this was great my friends I thank you with the bottom of my heart you are our heroes let's do this again okay you've been listening to LA operas behind the curtain thank you And see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Operas Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.